Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away. Whenever I hear this story about Mary and Martha, I feel a deep uneasiness in my gut, somewhat like a dessert that's too sweet, French fries that are too greasy or salty, and biting into a piece of raw rhubarb all at once. <laughs> As a woman, this story is deeply personal. The role conflicts are altogether too real, and the frustration that whatever one chooses, there will always be questions, doubts, or reminders from others that perhaps one should have chosen differently. Sometimes I identify with Mary, other times with Martha, and often both at once, which brings out the most conflicted feelings. Occasionally I wonder whether Jesus, being a man in that particular culture and time, had any clue what it took to prepare a meal and to prepare for hospitality. Blessing Mary's choice to sit and listen at his feet comes at the expense of her sister Martha, who is trying to be a good host. Yet to resolve the frustration that Martha feels by getting Mary to help would leave the, ho the guest unattended and therefore dishonored. There is no way to win, it seems. Traveling teachers and rabbis depended on local hospitality for food and shelter. For such an honored guest as Jesus, Martha would have wanted to offer her very best, which was the protocol for hospitality in ancient Near East culture. Perhaps she had planned something too elaborate for the short amount of time she had to prepare for his coming or for the help available to the point that it, the hospitality, rather than the guest, overtook her focus. As a child, my mother often had someone join us for dinner, usually once or so a week. These dinners weren't much different from everyday meals, and sometimes they included leftovers. We also were invited to others' homes in likewise. With less attention to preparing food or to removing every bit of dust and clutter, conversation tended to flow quite freely. And often the guests would come into the kitchen and help chop vegetables and to serve and to clean up as we continued the conversation. There was something about this informality where serving and being served could not be easily separated that led to spontaneity and deepened friendships. My mother did distinguish between having someone over for dinner and throwing a party, however, the latter involving far more preparation and being far less frequent. Yet somewhere along the way, over time, 
inviting guests over for dinner has become more of like a throwing a party than simply sharing a meal, making the choice to offer hospitality far more difficult, especially in our fast-paced, complex worlds. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I remember learning about the coastal Native American tradition of potlatch, a ceremonial feast of hospitality that over time grew increasingly elaborate in the expectations that were placed on the host to the extent that it focused more on upholding and sometimes impoverishing one's status in the community than on mutually enjoying the celebration in one another's company. Today in our society, with the internet and social media uh, flooding us with content geared to upscaling and professionalizing our expectations around hospitality, either as a host over what we should serve uh, and how we should do it, or as a guest, this has led to a complexity and a difficulty of hospitality that is distracted from the focus of our relationships, and that is on one another. We can see this particularly, this upscaling uh, in examples of weddings. Yes. <laughs> They, um, I think anybody who's um, had a little history of weddings can, can see how they have changed over time and become so elaborate. Wonderful events, but at the same time, it's um, quite significant, more of an event than oftentimes focusing on the relations of one another. At what point does hospitality cease to be about the respect and comfort of others, and more about meeting social expectations that ultimately focus on what others might think about oneself. This, I think, may have been at the crux of Jesus' rebuke of Martha when she said to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? It's also significant that she asks Jesus, the guest, to intervene in a family issue, trying to get him to use his authority to have Mary do what she, Martha, wants. From the way the story unfolds, Martha may have assumed that Mary simply would help her and do whatever needed, she thought needed to be done, perhaps without checking in or negotiating that with Mary. And obviously, Mary had other ideas and other choices. Hospitality in the biblical world was considered to be a gesture of friendship towards others. It meant making them feel comfortable, protecting them from discord and danger, and sharing what one had at the moment as humble as it might be. Martha's words to Jesus would have made any guest uncomfortable 
and thus violated a significant social norm of hospitality, even in that day. Taking the story at face value, it was more about realigning one's priorities, perhaps keeping hospitality a little simpler so that Martha, as well as Mary, could have had more time with their guest. Perhaps if it had happened today in 21st century Berkeley, the guest might be invited into the kitchen so that all could take part in the teaching and conversation as the work that needed to be done was undertaken. In this way, I've begun to think of hospitality more as a process, a hospitality of our heart, one might say, than as an act or an event. If our heart is hospitable, open and oriented towards others, and what will build a relationship, it will focus on their well-being rather than what they might think about us. Jesus would have liked to have had Martha listen as well, much more so than the diligent attention that she was putting in to meeting the hospitality norms of the day. Yet as one who studies gender equality and religion, I'm aware that there are other interpretations of this story that need to be lifted up. One of the more common has been to acknowledge Mary's choice to take the role of a disciple rather than confine herself to the kitchen and traditional women's roles. Jesus, by affirming her choice, was crossing gender boundaries on behalf of women's engagement in spiritual matters on the same basis as men. Forty-five years ago, on the Feast of Mary and Martha, the first female priests were ordained in the Episcopal Church. Twenty-five years ago, the first female priests were ordained in the Church of England, and comparatively, only recently has women's choice for the same spiritual vocation as men been commonly accepted. And in some churches, obviously, and sectors and traditions, women still do not have the same choices or opportunities as men. Uh, in our own church, uh, there is still inequality in the opportunities available and some of the choices uh, that are able to be made. This spring, while I was in Africa, I met a woman who had told me that she had long felt called to the priesthood in her church, even though her Anglican province had been open to women's ordination for a long time. But she was from a poor, single-parent family and from a minority tribe that was looked down upon. She also was single herself, and her ordination would bring no prestige to the church. She had been told, quite openly, 
that there was no place for her to serve. Yet she continued from the margin to listen and learn, perhaps like Mary, gaining scholarship, and she became one of the more powerful scholarly voices and advocates of women's equality in her region and in the church. She has stood up for ordained women to be given the same opportunities as men and for those who are looked down upon to be lifted up as equals. Hospitality calls for us to do no less. Another interpretation, however, of the Mary and Martha story involves the early Christian church that was the focus of Luke's gospel somewhere around the turn of the first century. New Testament scholar uh, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza has proposed that women's leadership in the church at that time had become so widespread and powerful that it was threatening the patriarchal social order. She sees this story as reflecting a debate in the church over women's roles, whether they should be as deacons and leaders of house churches or as passive members who simply listen and learn from what they hear. In my own research on women clergy, I've found that once women have reached a critical mass, such that they are visible, worries begin to set in about them taking over the church. Despite the, the, uh, the fact that that's uh, not on most of any woman's agenda. This results in backlash movements such as undermining women's leadership. And an example of that might be uh, this story in Luke, according to Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza. The emphasis put on Mary's passive listening rather than her actively engaging, um, even in, as rabbis and disciples would engage one another in debate so that you speak and you learn through discussion, uh, was an important statement about the role of women being passive and silent rather than uh, active in leadership. This morning, after the 7.30 service, um, someone came up to me, and she had done quite a bit of study around the Mary and Martha story, and she added another interpretation. And uh, I wish I knew sign language. I'm sorry. Uh, but she said that it also had been interpreted in the early church history uh, of pitting against, uh, pitting uh, contemplative women's religious orders against active women's um, religious orders who were active in the world and in leadership, and that through this story, the contemplative role of women was being lifted up and preferred uh, over the active. 
and that the rebuke of Martha's serving was intended to reinforce a male-dominant leadership. When an issue, any issue, becomes about us versus them, hospitality gets lost in the fray. What all of our readings share in common this morning is how easily and forcefully our focus on our own self-interest can take us out of relationship with God. In Amos, we hear God's frustration with Israel as people follow their own self-interests and greed at the expense of hospitable stewardship towards one another. For the community of Colossians, People have been caught up in excessive diligence as the key to unlocking religion's mysteries, when for Christians, it really is just very simple. Listening with the heart and practicing loving relationship with one another in Christ. That's all we're asked to do or be. For Jesus, not letting ourselves be distracted to the point that it harms authentic hospitality and spiritual relationship building. And for the Christian community of Luke, perhaps a better way forward can be in sharing more equitably in the discipleship and ministry, regardless of gender or any other delimitation. The Bible itself is about hospitality, God's and ours. The choices we make around hospitality can be conflicted and difficult, especially when we want to honor one another. But at what point does that desire transform our focus into honor rather than the other person? We tend to miss the boat either by going overboard or worry about what others will think. Or we never get on board into that sacred place where we recognize the potential for Christ's presence in our guest. To cultivate a hospitality of the heart allows us and those whom we encounter to stay afloat through the riptides and many other conflicting currents of our time. For me in my own life, as I have moved out of my comfort zone, meeting strangers and others who have differences from myself, whether it's in belief or culture or even language, having an open, hospitable heart means less worry about what I say or do or worry about offending, but more about being with them and being comfortable with their presence of just who they are and letting the situation speak to me about what is needed or appropriate at the time. Where in your life can you live out a hospitality of the heart? Amen.